Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, listeners, to episode 34 of the Ad Nauseam podcast. My name is Dr. Jeff Winkle, and I am here, as always, in the vomitorium with my good friend, Dr. David Noe. How are you doing today, Dave? I'm doing well. Thanks. You're doing Very well? well. Yeah. Yes. I'm fighting something. Are you? Again, you, you were fighting last week. I am still fighting. Can you hear it? I'm feeling a little raspy. Yes. I was trying to think of some famous raspy celebrity I could... Steven Tyler. Okay, so Steven Tyler guest host today? Maybe. Right. But if you think you can sing like him, yeah. dream on. Really? <laughs> I was just thinking Rod Stewart, but I, I think I'd rather be Stephen Tyler than Rod Stewart. Wake up, Jeff. I think <laughs> I got something to say to you. <laughs> this is going to be nonstop Aerosmith quotes throughout that the That was not Aerosmith. What, what, what do you, what that do you was do? Rod Stewart. Wake up, Maggie. Oh, of course. Right. See, I'm, I'm even more out you of it. You are than, quite I, off. I am out of it. Shall yeah. I give the shout out? Please do. Okay. Yeah. So this goes to our friend, Kirk Summers, Dr. Kirk Summers, Kirkolis Maximus who is a professor of classics at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, and his Latin 202 class is reading Virgil. So we want to say hello as well to Megan, Grace, and Haley. Excellent. Thank you, Kirk, for listening. And um, he's a good friend of yours, right? Yeah, he is. Yeah, yeah he's a uh, world's expert in Theodore Beza, among other things. Is that right? And he's got these young ladies in his class, Megan, Grace, Haley, reading through some Virgil. And I think they're listening to the podcast also. Fabulous. And uh, ladies, keep up your great and uh, impressive study of Latin. It's going to be such a value to you later in life and at present, I'm sure. Definitely. And another reminder of uh, we got to get to Virgil. I think last week we oh, were talking yeah. about Oh, yeah. We're that. constantly talking about okay, it. Exactly. We will. We will. Okay. Someday. Right. Okay. But Jeff, you have our quote. Don't I do. you? The appetizer, the, uh, the opening quote here. Yes, exactly. This comes from... Um, Bernard Knox's wonderful introduction to um, Robert Fagel's translation of the Iliad, which I believe we, we've referenced before. We have talked about um, Fagel's. A number of episodes ago, but he writes this about Homer. Homer's method is dramatic rather than epic. The proportion of direct speech to narrative is such that these scenes could be performed by actors. And as is clear from Plato's Ion, the later rhapsodes who gave Homeric recitations exploited the dramatic potential of Homer's text to the full. Like a dramatist, Homer shows us character and motivation not by explanation, but through speech and action. And he also invokes the response of an audience familiar with heroic poetry and formulaic diction, counting on their capacity to recognize significant omissions, contrasts, variations, and juxtapositions. We are not told what is going on in the mind of his characters. We are shown. Homer, like the god Apollo at Delphi in Heraclitus' famous phrase, does not say, nor does he conceal, he indicates. Oh, I like that. Yeah. I like the idea, and it's one I have talked about with my students uh, many times, that once again, you get the sense of who the character is from what the character says. It's dialogue, right? not interior monologue. And uh, I think it was when our friend Gary Schmidt was here, he mentioned the scholar Robert Alter. And uh, at that time, I happened to be reading Alter's book, The Art of Biblical Narrative. Yeah. Then he also has The Art of... Uh, biblical poetry. Alter makes this uh, statement, this claim, observation about uh, Old Testament authors as well. You rarely get it inside their mind. The the omniscient third-person standpoint doesn't tell us what they're thinking. You conclude it, you deduce it from what they say. Yeah. And that that's really interesting to me. 
Yeah. Uh, because it gives you an immediacy, right? But it also leaves things unsaid. You have to kind of fill in the gaps a little bit in this poetry of Homer. So what are they thinking that would lead them to say this? Exactly, right. One of the reasons I like this quote is I think we actually see in the books that we're coming today a rare moment where we do get some uh, inner monologue, where Homer takes us inside uh, Odysseus's mind. But for the most part, he leaves so much open, so much open to interpretation. So it's wonderful for the for the scholar to kind of jump in and speculate about who's doing or why is someone doing what they're doing in that moment. Right. Once again, to see things that aren't there. Exactly right. <laughs> That's our job. Right. So what we're looking at today is books 18, 19, and 20. We're going to take these three books together, 18, 19, and 20. Later on, we'll cover 21, 22, 23. Yes. And save the final episode on this long Long Odyssey <laughs> yes. for book 24 and summary. Yeah. So today, 18, 19, 20. And the action starts to pick up speed as we're heading toward the bloody climax. Right. So we want to know who is in control here. Is it Athena? Is it Odysseus? Penelope? The suitors? Telemachus, maybe? And you get the sense here in these books, just as a kind of prolepsis or anticipation, that Penelope is, uh, she's going to start steering the action. I definitely feel that way. I think if I were to answer this question, like, who's in control here? Right. Well, I mean, yes, ultimately the gods or destiny, but... Um, he says dismissively. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but on the ground, it's really Penelope, I think, starts to take the reins here. And she's going to decide how and when this is going to end. Yeah, I think that's a very accurate assessment. However... I'm, I'm somewhat torn because, as we'll see, there are moments when she actually prays to Artemis to take her out of the story altogether. Yeah. Homer delights in jerking our attention back and forth somewhat. Right. Is Penelope going to, is she going to die, actually, before the denouement? Sorry, the denouement. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Almost messed up the French uh, of the entire episode, of the entire epic. So to what degree, we might say... To what degree is the looming death of the suitors a necessary just victory? And uh, to what degree is it simply an awful bloody tragedy? Yes, I think that's also something that I'm really interested in is, is to what degree does Homer lend some measure of sympathy to the suitors? We see... Shaking my head. Listeners can't see a bit of a Raising my eyebrows. He's shaking his head violently over there on the this other side of the like table. This is just like with the Cyclops. Yeah. Monster. He deserves to be killed. Yes. Well, I don't disagree with that. Okay. But I think it argues against the way I think that sometimes this story is told more simply. I you see. Know, good you, guy, bad guy. You mean simplistically, actually. Simplistically. We have taken out of it the the nuance mm-hmm. that uh, that Homer has actually placed there. Right. Okay. So in some of these these minor suitor characters who are mentioned, and we get these li- these little vignettes, there's a... Um, mm-hmm. I know who you're talking about. Yeah. Amphinimus. Amphinimus, yes, exactly. Yep. I think he's one of these characters where Homer at least makes a step back yep. and mourn a little bit. Give them a little bit of credence, a little bit of sympathy. Right. Is Amphinimus the character that can live both in the palace and out of the palace? <laughs> exactly. He's, he's Amphinimus. <laughs> Right. Or am I thinking of someone else? Uh, no, the, this is the guy. Okay. Yeah, he's he's as, as at home in a bedroom as he is out under the stars. Okay. Right? He's amphinimus. 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 What does he wrap his sandwiches in when he brings them to work? Uh, I'm not sure exactly. Aluminum. <laughs> I thought you would have seen that coming. No. No, I'm gonna. I'm going to use my um, my poor health right now as an excuse for not getting these things. All right, we'll yeah. see what that can do. Okay. 
But before we get into it, we have to address a glaring omission from last week. We definitely do. It's one of the key recognition scenes. Well, maybe not key, but one of my favorite recognition scenes. And that's the recognition of Odysseus's ancient old dog, Argus, mm-hmm. who sniffs his master one last time before passing away. Just dropping off dead. Yes. So we have to pause for the cause there a minute and talk about Argus, don't we? <laughs> Yes, we do. Argus has been laying on a dung pile. And kids, if you don't know what dung is, get yourself a good dictionary. Mm -hmm. But this shows just the great extent of the violation of Xenia on the part of the suitors. They don't have the decency or the kindness to even take care of this poor old animal. Doesn't get even get the scraps from the feasts. No, right. he doesn't get a nice soft blanket to lie in. I mean, have some human compassion and mercy. This dog doesn't have to be your favorite. The suitors don't have to give it, you know, special table scraps, but don't leave it there lying in the filth. How old is this creature now? Eurycleia tells a story of, um, or we hear a story of Odysseus hunting with this dog. When right. He's so he's, he's got to be over 20 years old. Right. When Odysseus was a child, or at least a young man, he's out hunting with this beast. So in dog years... Like 140, 150 years? <laughs> ancient. Ancient. Yeah. And he's lying here in this pile of filth, neglected by the wicked suitors. Odysseus is approaching, right? This is not in 18, 19, 20. It's in 17. We missed it last week, right. ladies and gentlemen. And when Argos gets sight and uh, smell of Odysseus, recognizes him, and immediately dies. Lifts his head. I mean, I, I just love this idea that this dog is just hanging on. Right. He's just hanging on, waiting for his master to return. One last glance, one last sniff, and, and then he it. can let go. Yeah. It's really quite... Touching and, and, and beautiful. It really is heart-wrenching. Yeah. Especially if, you, if you're a dog person. Right. right? Yeah. You're going to ask me if I'm a dog person? Are you, are you a dog person? I'm, I'm you're, pref- a, you're a no-pet person. I prefer fried chicken, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm much more inclined to that. No, I had lots of dogs as a kid. Yeah. Yeah. On the farm? On the farm. Most yeah. of them died grisly deaths. <laughs> oh, no. You know, because that's farm life. <laughs> but yeah, dogs are wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So as we begin book 18, what's the first episode that we get to see here? Well, there's, what's going on? there's more ab- abuse of the beggar in the hall. I mean, last time we were talking about, or at least I accused the previous three books of being trophy. Yes. And, and uh, it's starting, the, the storm is really starting to gather here. So I'm not accusing these books of being trophy. You're out of the trough. I'm out of the trough, but I'm, I'm seeing the purpose of the trough here because it's really starting to build here um, in these three books. And I... I really enjoyed this. Um, the next three books that we're talking about in, in our next Odyssey episode, I think, really is the heart of the whole thing. Okay. So we have uh, Odysseus in disguise. Yes. Now he's in the palace, mm-hmm. right? He's in the palace on Ithaca. Telemachus is hanging around Eumaeus. There's assorted goat herds and gow herds and so forth. And this character now emerges. There's a local beggar, Iris. Iris. Right. He seems to be kind of the preferred beggar. Yeah, but it's, it's not his real name. What's his real name? I can't remember, but <laughs> I'll check. Iris is a nickname, remember? And he's given the name Iris, like the goddess, the winged goddess of the rainbow, mm. who's a step and fetch it for um, uh, yeah. Hera. Right. And uh, he's given this name because he runs errands, doesn't he, for the suitors. Right. Uh, but it isn't his real name. Um, not dissimilar to the way that on our various trips abroad, oh yes, we gave a lot of nicknames to the students who accompanied us. That was one of the most fun things to do for us. <laughs> <laughs> well, we ra- we rarely shared these nicknames. Well, no, and they were all kind, of weren't course. they? Yeah. Yes, for the most part. <laughs> so this fellow Iris, the local beggar, you say he's the favorite beggar. Well, I mean, if he if he's the kind of the errand boy. 
I think I get the sense that he feels like he's kind of earned his place there. Mm-hmm. He gets the first scraps, you mm-hmm. might, might say, and he doesn't like it when this new beggar steps up or shows up and cuts in on the on the action. Mm-hmm. And this new beggar, of course, is the disguised Odysseus. Yes. So, what about this notion of a um, a, a comic construct? Right. We've we've talked about this earlier about how the Odyssey, say compared to the Iliad, is is a comedy as opposed to a tragedy. Not in that it's funny, but you have these notions that. It's amongst the rich that you find moral turpitude. It's amongst the poor that you find you know, heart and heart and soul. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of that here. The, the suitors represent kind of the the rich villains, mm-hmm. and guys like Eumaeus represent kind of the other side of that. But here we have Iris, who's a beggar, who in that calculus should be amongst the sympathetic. He's not. No, no. So it's a it's a comedy in the sense of challenging aristocratic norms. Yes. In the in the Iliad, the aristocratic norms are all maintained. Yes, Thersites gets whooped in book two. Right, and uh, as we talked about last week, but here Iris is kind of true to type, you might say. Absolutely, in the aristocratic world. All right, let me read from the Lombardo translation of what uh, Iris has to say to this uh, this new beggar, uh, Odysseus. He says, "Out of the doorway, geezer! Before I throw you out on your ear, don't you see all these people winking at me to give you the bums rush? I wouldn't want to stoop so low, but if you don't get out now." I may have to lay hands on you. <laughs> so, so we're going to be treated to what? Bum boxing? Bum here? boxing, beggar, beggar boxing, right. wrestling. Yep. Two homeless guys, uh, old and decrepit in some way. But the the suitors are going to take a kind of keen glory and seeing or joy in seeing these two duke it out. Yeah, it's really pathetic. Does Homer want us to think that this is a part of the moral degeneracy of the suitors? I think without a doubt. Okay. Right. So the, who would who would pit two poor old guys against each other and turn it into, you know, a, a wager? Who's who's going to win, you know? Yeah. 3 to 1 on Iris, whatever the <laughs> right, right, the odds right. are. Right. And compare this to think about you know, the entertainment amongst the Phaeacians. It's Demodocus singing these songs, and yeah. it's very elevated, it's very moving. And in uh, Odysseus' house, we got bum boxing. Right. So the suitors, they set up this fight, but they sweeten the pot, and they offer a prize to the winner. What is that prize? Yes, it's very odd. If you're reading along, listener, the prize is a goat paunch. Yes, a bloody goat paunch. Well, the blood is accessory, right? The, the paunch is the stomach, right? The animal's stomach is taken out and then it's stuffed with meats and various kinds of delicacies, organ meats. The whole thing is sort of covered in blood. It's sewn up and then slow roasted. So I think it's like a giant sausage. Really. Yeah, like a haggis, right? Yes, the, the Scottish, the Scottish isn't it? Yeah. So, so this is this is. But a, most people think it's disgusting, don't they? I think so. Are we going to get any Scottish listeners out of this? <laughs> We're gonna lose some Scottish. Hey, we listeners. have some listeners in Europe. Well, we but, got we got some in other Anglophone places. Yes, that's true. So have have them call, have them write in and, and weigh in on the haggis question. Okay, right. So goat paunch—that's the prize for the bum boxing. Yeah. So. I don't think we're supposed to find this disgusting. This is a this is oh a, no, it's a, a delicacy. This is a delicacy. Okay, this is a decent prize. I had some salami earlier today. Yeah, it, it was delicious. You didn't have to fight for it. Did I you? didn't have to slow roast it over a fire either. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but then when Odysseus right, he takes his his muscle shirt off right and his other bum clothes. What's the reality lying underneath? Oh man, he's 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 actually looking quite ripped. He's been to the gym. He's been to the gym, mm-hmm. and um, and so Athena, you know, she's disguised him, but there's enough of kind of the old. You know, toughened, muscular Odysseus there that everybody kind of stops and the suitors step back and say, "Whoa, yeah, yeah, didn't expect this, right?" 
It doesn't give Iris any pause, does it? No. I mean, he's he's an idiot. Yeah. Uh, but he, and he steps into the fray. There's a lot of belly talk, too. Did you notice? I, I belly, And I miss the belly talk. Well, Odysseus apparently has a kind of a pot belly. Right? That's part of his old man's disguise. Gotcha. Yeah. And so there's a lot of mocking of, you know, his physique. Well, you got that belly. Yeah, but I'm, I'm still plenty muscular is what he sort of maintains. And Iris kind of has this typical old man decrepit you know, too much Heineken kind of look about it. Gotcha. Would it be fair to say that Odysseus has kind of a, a dad bod? <laughs> I think that's, I don't really want to go there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, we can, we can leave that behind. I just wanted to throw we need to there. We need to save such talk for an upcoming episode when we bring the ad nauseum wives on the show. Oh, that, that that's going to happen? You oh, think, yeah. You that's going to happen? Jeff, yeah, okay. don't play coy. You've right. been talking about it. You even have a um, a working title for it, don't you? It's uh, Married with Classicist, right? Married with Classicist. Yeah. Mrs. Winkle yes. and Mrs. Noe are going to come on and share with the audience what it's really like to be uh, married to such persons. Oh, it's going to be filled with bombshells. <laughs> right, that might be our last episode. Uh, maybe so. Yeah. So now, right before the action gets going, Homer gives us some rare insight into uh, Odysseus's thought process. Right. So, so not just dialogue. Not just dialogue. So it kind of goes against what um, what Knox was arguing in our opening quote. But this mm-hmm. is a rarity, and I thought it would it's it'd be interesting to um, for the audience to, be, to call attention to it. Yeah. Can I read some of that? Please. All right. So they shoved him out into the middle, and both men put up their fists. Odysseus, the wily veteran, thought it over. Should he knock the man stone cold dead? Or ease up on the punch and just lay him out flat. Better to go easy and just flatten him, he thought, so that the crowd won't get suspicious. The fighters stood tall, circling each other, and as Iris aimed a punch at his right shoulder, Odysseus caught him just beneath the ear, crushing his jawbone. I like there's a there's a number of moments in these in these books that where Odysseus thinks, should I just kill them all now? Right. Or should I back off? I'll I'll back off. I'll back off. Right. He's much more restrained. <laughs> as I think would be the case in a man who has suffered as much as he has. Right. We're going to see another really interesting episode coming up shortly where he draws upon past experience, past suffering, and mm-hmm. uses that as a reason not to take immediate action. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think this is also evidence that this is an Odysseus who's learned some things. Yes, definitely. Right. He's not the impulsive guy we saw in the Cyclops episode anymore. No. Right? He knows he has to take his time. Is there a is there a hierarchy among these beggars? Yeah, I, th- I think that's really interesting uh, too. There's uh, even Iris seems to suggest that just like the suitors are kind of jockeying for position, um, he's number one, mm-hmm. and I'm going to be the number one beggar. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe this guy can stick around, but he has to go sleep out, you know, on the dung heap with his with that old dog out there. Right. But um, yeah, there's competition even amongst beggars. So there's the agonistic Greek impulse at all levels of society. All levels, exactly. If you're going to be a beggar, be the best one you can be. Is that kind of Iris's motto? I, I think so. Although I wouldn't take Iris as a model for much. No, I said a motto. Motto, yes. Yeah, I think that's his motto. Yeah, I take that. So he lays Iris out flat, mm-hmm. crushing his jawbone, which had to be brutally painful. Yes, indeed. Yeah. And then we have our character, right? Amphinimus appears. Yeah. And what happens? So this is one, Amphinimus, like we mentioned earlier, is one of these minor suitors. Um, and Odysseus recognizes him. And we, he notes that... Um, He's from a good family. He comes from good stock. And uh, Homer suggests that he's one of these guys that he's kind of along for the ride, but he recognizes that this is not the way things ought to be. Wrong place, wrong time. Right. Maybe he kind of got pushed into it by peer pressure. Yeah. After all, Penelope's very beautiful, and Odysseus has been gone a long time. Maybe this is a legitimate opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and so Odysseus gently comes alongside him as, again, as the beggar. 
and says, you know, you might want to get out of here. Mm-hmm. Uh, then Homer quickly reminds us, this is fated. Yes. Um, and, What's the particular phrase? Uh, he's uh, Lombardo translate. He's pinned by Athena. Mm. He's he's done. And he, I think he also suggests that Infinimus knows it. He recognizes mm. it. And he kind of slopes his shoulders and just, he knows something bad is coming, even if he can't really put his finger on it. Is there anything noble in the acceptance of the fate? A sense of, yeah, I, it's really too late to say I'm not involved in this immoral behavior, this degeneracy of eating the man out of house and home and bullying his family? I don't know. I don't see any, not like like no, an, an Oedipus kind of accepting his fate. No true regret. No true regret. I mean, no nobody, no city is saved by, um, you know, his acceptance of, of his fate. It's just, it's just tragic and, and awful. Okay. But it is a reminder that, you know, all the suitors aren't Eurymachus and Antinous. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a wide array of people with different reasons for being there, but, so, the, but they're all going to go down. So the hierarchy of beggars... Mm-hmm. And now we also see some kind of discretion among the suitors. I'd agree with that as well, yeah. Some are wicked and far gone. Antinous, Eurymachus, they're the really bad ones. Amphinimus, like you said, kind of along for the ride. Peer pressure, wrong place, wrong time. Yeah, and I think this will should affect the way we feel about what ultimately happens. And um, Odysseus' final action, that's a, a couple of episodes away. That he may be going too far? He may be going too far, or Homer wants us to at least mull over the tragedy of this action. It's, okay. it's not just bad guys who need to die dying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Penelope's going to come and appear before the suitors. Yes. She's going to make one last promenade, kind of show off, you know, her beauty or intelligence, the whole thing. And the purpose seems to be she's trying to draw them out a little further. Right. Because strangely, she anticipates the judgment that's coming. Yeah. So this is one last attempt. Here you go, suitors, right? You get to see what you're going to miss out on because judgment's on its way. Yeah. This is the point in the story where I really start to like Penelope a lot. You didn't like her so much before? I, I liked her, but here she really, she comes alive. So um, Athena, you know, she kind of does the opposite with Penelope that she does with, with Odysseus. She makes her extra beautiful. Mm-hmm. Lulls her to sleep. Lulls her to sleep and then makes her look like a goddess. Yeah, she gives her some special Aphrodite potion, some, some cosmetic that Aphrodite herself uses. I, I love the way that Homer simply suggests all these things. Yeah. It doesn't state everything explicitly. It gives you, you know, room for imagination. Right, 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 right. So I imagine there was oat milk involved. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> right. We, we don't want to go, back, go to back, that. back to that. No, no, we're not. Right. Uh, there's one particular listener. She knows who she is. She did not like that little riff on shampoo and other sorts of products. Oh, apologies to that listener. I'm yeah, sorry. She knows who she is. Okay. <laughs> the suitors go weak need. Yeah. Oh, they, because Penelope is so beautiful. So beautiful. Right. So you take this as this is Penelope really, um, uh, she's almost kind of drawing out the horror to some degree. She's she's making the suitors that much more ridiculous. She's making them that much more, I have no idea where I'm going with this. Pathetic. Pathetic. They're pathetic. The pathetic, yes. Yeah. Well, I don't know if it's, you know, if Penelope so much as Athena who's behind all this. Right. Uh, the, the epic has been leading for all these books to her choice of the particular suitor. And so she's, she's deceiving them, Penelope. She's craftily, wittily uh, leading them astray. Mm-hmm. Right? Here I am in all my beauty. This is what, you know, you're going to miss out on and death is on its way. It's coming. So do you feel at this point that Penelope knows who the beggar is? And she's, no. she's doing these things for, but close. for his benefit as well? It's concealed. It's so mysterious. Yeah. When does she actually get true knowledge? Somewhere in these books, I think she catches on to it. Yeah. I mean, there are, there are moments where she, you know, she shares things with this beggar that 
you would why on earth would she tell him that right and if she doesn't know if, if socially awkward right very awkward. that's so inappropriate that you would tell uh, a stranger these family intimate secrets exactly right so why would she say that unless she knew who this was so then eurymachus who you have to he's he's in your top two um, suitors of worst suitors of worst suitors um but from the general con- um conception it's here Antinous. if anyone's got a shot it's one of these guys okay it seems to be the idea you mean leading leading candidates for her hand yes got it right so he speaks up and praises her beauty and in that moment penelope then recalls what odysseus told her uh, before he left for troy and we will get to that quote after the break This week's episode brought to you by Ratio Coffee. Ratio Coffee, ladies and gentlemen, listen closely, please. Mark Helwig and his team in Portland, Oregon, have solved your aesthetic and brew-based problems. Why spend 4 to $6 on coffee purchases in some drive through when you can brew, get this, better coffee at home? The Ratio 6 and its big brother, the 8 beautiful automatic pour-over machines that consistently brew the finest java. You want to check this out. Yes, I do. That's right, Jeff. The Ratio sends... 200 degree Fahrenheit water. That's close to boiling, soaring through its metallic veins. There's no plastic in this creature. Down into the cone that's filled with freshly ground Adastra beans. It then sits in the bloom stage. That's one of those buttons. I had a little trouble with my bloom button this morning. You did? It wasn't caused by the ratio, of course. It was just user error. I glanced across the kitchen. Is that blooming? Ah, yeah, it's blooming. Oh, so. so you just thought it wasn't blooming for a moment. I, I thought for a moment, right. that's not blooming, but oh, it was blooming. Well, the blooming is so silent, you don't even notice. You're right, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then after the bloom stage and all of the harsh CO2 off-gasses lazily into the biosphere, then the coffee is deposited into a hand-blown borosilicate glass or stainless steel carafe. No bitterness, no burned flavor, no brackish tang just consistent sweet coffee that's right you got the eight and i have the six they're, they're wonderful machines oh yeah it's like 14 coffee all together <laughs> that's right so listen up coffee files go to ratiocoffee.com right now and get a 15 percent exclusive discount on the ratio six enter special code anco that's anco for 15 percent off the ratio six anco ratiocoffee.com check it out This episode of Ad Nauseum is also brought to you by Hackett Publishing. Since 1972, Hackett has been setting the standard for affordable, high-quality translations in the field of classics. That's almost 50 years, isn't it? That's a long time. And many other areas of the humanities. Jeff, what do you like about the large assortment of books that Hackett has to offer? Hackett's growing list includes hundreds of titles covering ancient history, literature, philosophy, political science, and classical language study. Hackett editions are ideal for both classroom use and general readership, offering affordable modern translations and editions of classics works with helpful scholarly notes, annotations, and introductions. What do you like, Dave? Well, let me indulge here in a little bit of uh, ridiculous hyperbole. Okay, please. Well, the era between the end of the Greco-Persian War in 480 and the beginning of the plague, that's called the Pentacontitia. That is true. The 50-year stretch. Hackett has its 50-year stretch, yes. an equally glorious period of time. <laughs> I mean, they had Aeschylus and Euripides and Herodotus and all of those greats during that 50-year period. We have Hackett. We have Hackett. For our, I said it was exaggerated hyperbole. <laughs> I'm very enamored of the Lingua Latina Per Se Illustrata series for Latin, written by the late Hans Orberg. Yeah, you won't stop talking about that. Well, we just celebrated his birthday. I learned this week, correct me if I'm wrong, listeners, uh, that he was born on April 21, Rome's birthday. That's 
fitting. Strange, huh? Yes. Strange coinkydink. I love that uh, Latin curricula, the LLPSI. So what can our AN friends get from Hackett? Well, Ad Nauseam listeners can save 20% on any order and receive free shipping from Hackett Publishing. All you have to do, listeners, is go to hackettpublishing.com. Hackett is H-A-C-K-E-T-T-T, publishing.com. Find the text you want and enter AN2021 in the box, which asks for the coupon code. That's a great deal. Don't hesitate. Check out hackettpublishing.com today. This episode is also brought to you by Ad Astra, finally. To the stars with great coffee. With great coffee. This comes to uh, us from Hillsdale, Michigan. Yeah, Mr. Patrick Whalen, an ex-Marine. But now he's in the coffee business. He's in the coffee business. He has this great repurposed machine. We don't know what it is still, but it roasts (laughs) delicious coffee. Oh, yeah. We've had a number of their different roasts. Um, I think we're we're both on the same page. We like the Tenebris. The Tenebris is fantastic. It's got a Latin name. They also have Las Lajas, Microlot, Huehuetenango. I said that without notes. <laughs> so, something from, I haven't tasted it, uh, but if it's anything like their other blends, just fantastic coffee. I like their poetry series where yes. they've got these these, uh, um, these wonderful uh, authors like Rilke and Wordsworth with their, you can read it on the package. And your haiku is going to be on one of their packages soon, right? Uh, no, or, I, 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 they, maybe, they rejected it outright, they? yes. My limerick is still in the running. Oh, it is? Yeah, there once was a guy who drank coffee. Yeah. He some, served it with foam. Not too frothy. Not too frothy. Have you, have you actually written the end of that limerick yet? We got to get to the end of this ad, <laughs> Jeff. <laughs> So, listeners, go to Odd Astra Roasters, A-D-A-S-T-R-A, oddastraroasters.com, and enter the special coupon code... A-N-A-A. A-N-A-A. Yes. <laughs> you able to get that out? <laughs> Poor Winkle. He's not feeling well today. A-N-A-A, and get 10% off any of their products. They also have a great monthly subscription. You won't regret it. All right, Dave, what does Penelope say that Odysseus told her before he left for Troy? Yes. Quote, I do not think, my wife, that all the Greeks will return from Ilion safe and sound. They say the Trojans are real warriors, so I do not know whether the god of war will send me back or if I'll go down there in Troy. So everything here is in your hands. Take care of my father and of my mother as you do now, or even more when I am gone. But when you see our son, a bearded man, marry whom you will... And leave this house. So he spoke, says Penelope, and it's all coming true. There will come a night when a hateful marriage will darken my bed, cursed as I am, my happiness destroyed by Zeus, and I have more heartache. She's making it all up. You think so? I think so. And, and I, don't, I don't say that um, pejoratively. I think this is brilliant. This is her wit. This is her wit. So, so Odysseus never said these things to her? I, well, he might have said, I think the first part sounds, uh, rings true. But the, but the second part where Odysseus says, when Telemachus is old enough, then go and do this. I don't buy it for a second. No, okay. And I think she's saying it both for the suitors to amp them up. But she's, I think, I, I'm going to go out on a limb. I think she knows the beggar is, is Odysseus. Really? And she's also kind of needling him as well. Kind of saying, all right, I'm move, making a move. You got to make a yeah, move. Yeah, move along. Move along. Because this is the moment, right? Yes. And, and I might just go the other direction? Yes. And I think there's, there's other things coming up too where Penelope suggests that she wants Odysseus to move, but she's also saying, if you don't, then this is what I got to do. Yeah. It's brilliant. So Mrs. Winkle, right, married with classicists. Yes. What do they say? Opposites attract? Mm-hmm. But here it's likes attract. I think so. Odysseus, brilliant, clever, witty, good liar. So you think Penelope's in the same mold? Yeah. I think just as we see Telemachus becoming more and more like his father, we start to see a, a side of Penelope where 
I see why Athena likes her too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's she's witty, she's clever, she's polutropos. Yeah, right. So, um, Mrs. Winkle, witty, yeah. witty, clever, versatile. Absolutely, we're opposites in in how we employ that wit. That's more than I want to know. Okay, sorry. <laughs> And what about you and uh, Mrs. Novi there? <laughs> I'm under pretty strict instructions. Don't bring the family into the podcast. Oh, just after you you, hey, you lured me into... I don't play fair. What can uh, I say? Uh, in I, the, I should know that by now. <laughs> you should. In the uh, beggar hierarchy, I'm way on the bottom. <laughs> I do not play fair. No. So we can't go there? No. Well, when we bring our wives on the show, then mar- it, then married it, with classes, Then it's on. Absolutely. Okay, all right. But, but for now, I'm just keeping my powder dry, you might say. Okay. All right. Fair enough. All right, but whatever might be Penelope's intention in giving this half-truth, half-lie, full-truth, full-lie, who knows? Yeah. Uh, Odysseus is in for some more insults, isn't he, and some more abuse. More abuse, more more uh, chucking of footstools. Okay. Yeah. Again, even the, the insults are, are changing from spoken to physical action. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so Eurymachus and Odysseus get into it. He gets angry, chucks a, Eurymachus gets angry, chucks a footstool. He, he breaks the leg off of one of the stools, doesn't he? Or does he throw the whole stool? I think he throws the whole stool here. Okay, and Odysseus turns his head at just the last minute. It's kind of like something out of um, The Matrix, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Perfect slow-mo, he turns aside. And where does that, uh, where does that stool go? It, 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 it uh, hits some poor cupbearer. Right. Yes. <laughs> just the, the guy who's bringing in the Pepsi, he <laughs> gets right. it in the head. That's right, exactly. I did not I did, I did nothing. Right. right. Is this a kind of foreshadowing? Yeah, I think this is also, um, well, of the, the missing of the mark that the suitors will, um, will display in the final fight. Hamartano, right? There we go. Throw a little Greek in there. Right. Hamartano is both an intellectual and a moral failure. Yes. You can't hit something and you're a sinner. You're wicked for that point, for that reason. Yep. And Amphinomus, Amphinomus sneaks yep. in at the end of this book too, doesn't he? Right. And so he, he kind of comes between them and uh, he says, again, Lombardo's translation, friends, no man should be angry at a thing fairly spoken or respond by arguing. Do not mistreat this stranger any longer or any of godlike Odysseus's household. Now let the cupbearer start us off so we can pour a libation and go home to rest. The stranger will leave in Odysseus' halls where he landed and in Telemachus' keeping. Hmm. So guilt by association? Yeah, I mean, th- these are very sympathetic lines. Okay. Right? Um, and so, this, again, listeners, this, this is the same guy who Odysseus tried to persuade to leave. Right. Um, and, yeah, he, he gets it, but he's, he's trapped. He's doomed. Athena has pinned him. Yep. All right, on to book 19 then. Okay. And we're going to start off with some um, mellifluous Greek read by you, I believe. I don't know how mellifluous it will be, honey flowing, but here we go. Let's do it. I love these lines. And Lombardo translates those lines like this. So Odysseus was left alone in the hall, planning death for the suitors with Athena's aid. And he speaks winged words to Telemachus. I love it. So the end of the first line, Dios, Odysseus, the divine Odysseus, the common epithet. He's clever. He's versatile. Dios, this epithet, it's applied to a number of different heroes. It's kind of just like heroic, right? Indeed. Godlike. And then the suitors show up in the second line with Athena plotting death. Plotting death. The winged words. Action at last. Is that what's going to happen now? Yeah. So I think if we take those lines of um, Penelope, kind of urging Odysseus to get moving, he takes the he takes the hint. Mm-hmm. So he orders Telemachus to in turn order Eurycleia, the nursemaid, 
to start locking up the weapons in the hall, mm. uh, making sure that the suitors don't have anything to lay any hands on when when it all goes down. Mm-hmm. Is that a fair fight? Um, no, that's a good question. I oh, thank you. Well, it's it's. It uh, took you all the way to episode thirty-four. Yes, I think this is the first good question you've asked. <laughs> this is amazing. Yeah, I've had a lot of irrelevancies and uh, <laughs> piffling ditherings, but, uh, but first but good question. Good first good first right, good question. I'll take yeah. it. All yeah. Right. Um. No, it's not fair, but I think it's fair's got nothing to do with it. Okay. Right. They are outnumbered, of course. We established last time 118 suitors and hangers-on. Right. Against, what, the three of them? Yeah. Odysseus, Telemachus, Eumaeus, just the three? I guess so. So by removing the weapons, you're kind of leveling the playing field. You are leveling the playing field. Yes. Now Penelope wants to talk to the stranger. She does. Right? She's going to follow the rules of Xenia. Only asks his name and origin after he's been fed. That's right. So he got a little bit of harassment. That's unavoidable in this situation, though. Okay. This is not your typical situation. What does she reveal about her own actions? Well, she tells him about this famous trick at the loom, Hmm. where she's told the suitors... She just weaves that into the conversation? Oh, man. It never stops with you. It doesn't. It never stops. Right. You get the warp and the woof. (laughs) Uh, may I go on? Please. Okay. So she told she tells this famous uh, trick that she's told the suitors, when I finish weaving this death shroud for my father-in-law, I'll choose one of you. And so she weaves during the day and she undoes what she does during the night. But um, isn't this kind of macabre? <laughs> go back to episode one, listener. Isn't this kind of uh, macabre? Laertes is still alive. Yeah. So, yeah, the death shroud. The death shroud. Right, right. I guess this is what a, a loyal, loving daughter-in-law does. Yeah, I, I guess. I mean, Laertes is—he's an old man now. I guess you know his his time is coming. I it's guess. coming, I suppose. Yeah. So he has to have a proper burial, and that requires the right kind of shroud. So right. she's going to weave it. And I think that probably you know underlines her sorrow here. It would be um, it would be it would be a different story if she was weaving you know in Afghan for you know sitting on the couch. Right? It would be a strange kind of juxtaposition. I guess so. So, but the the suitors figure it out. And I, I think it also speaks to the the lack of candle power that the the suitors have going on upstairs and the fact that it takes them so long to figure this out right right? it doesn't seem to be growing day by day right what's going on she's a slow she's a slow weaver right um but this is what i was we were talking about earlier is why would she tell this beggar about that this is one of those intimate family details that goes too far right and so i see this as penelope kind of saying to her husband hey, look at how clever I am. Look at how stupid these guys are. Mm-hmm. Uh, look at how much we're alike. Reveal yourself already. Yeah. Okay. Right, right. So if, she, if she knows the identity, which I'm I'm coming around to that viewpoint. Okay. That's plausible. But then Odysseus makes up a story, doesn't right, he? Right. So we've seen him done um, at least a couple of times in these, these latter books. And he says, oh, yes, you know, I am a stranger from Crete. And in my travels, I I met your husband and I hosted him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> And, and I like that Penelope doesn't just kind of accept this. She says, oh, really? You knew my husband? Well, what was he wearing? Exactly. What was he wearing? <laughs> Tell me this, stranger. Yeah. And what was he wearing? He was wearing a brooch. Okay. He was wearing, not just a brooch. A so gold brooch. Yes. It was beautiful. It had a shape like some animal. Yeah. And all of gold. And he was wearing a kind of a gossamer cloak. Yes. Kind of a special. I learned this week the most expensive sweatshirt in America. Mm-hmm. Did you know this? No. No, it's made by a company called Giant. Okay. Maybe it's not the most expensive, but for, you know, podcast salary kind of guys, it's up there. Is, is it is it huge? No, it's human size. Okay, so it's just that from a company called Giant, they're making oversized oh, sweatshirts? You know. 
uh, to be ordered only by Cyclopses, right? <laughs> right, right. No, no, it's it's normal size. How much is it? It's over a hundred dollars. Does that seem outrageous? Maybe for a sweatshirt. Yeah. But I mean, that's I guess maybe not a ball gown. Was, you might pay a hundred for a ball gown. I was expecting it's like twelve hundred dollars, but so. well, there are probably such. Yeah. But, but this one I thought was quite rich, a hundred dollars. Yeah. Was it was it attractive? Did it was it gossamer? I, I'm not personally attracted to sweatshirts. <laughs> All right, so Odysseus in this brooch. We get this mini little ekphrasis of mm-hmm. the brooch, right? And Wait, slow down there. Yes. Is German, French, Portuguese? Uh, Greek. Okay. Yes, right. A, a Explain speak, it to a us. A speaking out, right? Ekphrasis. Um, where a poet um, kind of zeroes in usually on some kind of artistic object in, mm-hmm. and gives a very um, a lavish description. A detailed of, description. Yes. So the ekphrasis that you didn't like last time what, what, was what, the robe, remember? Oh, yeah. Helen's spangly robe? Yeah, I didn't need to hear about that. No. But, I want to hear about Death Shroud. I'll, okay. I'll hear more about that. Uh, Iliad Book 18, I believe, the ekphrasis of Achilles' shield. Now, there, there's an ekphrasis. There's one you can yes. sink your teeth into. Right. So this, we, is, this is a tiny one. Well, let's go on a little bit. We have yeah. also one in uh, the Aeneid, a shield. Yes. And in Ovid, the, the doors of the palace. Yeah. And, These, and both those guys are taking their cue from Homer. Of course. Yeah. All right. We've covered some territory. Go on, please. Okay. So um, this guy from Crete that Odysseus pretends to be, he paid a lot of attention to what Odysseus was wearing, mm-hmm. right? Um, he has a lot of knowledge about this. <laughs> it's a little suspicious. Um, but that's, of course, when he describes the brooch. There, there again, it's husband and wife kind of playing with each other. And they're kind of like, who's going who's gonna to give it away first? Who's going to kind of let the other one know what they know? Mm-hmm. And Odysseus, and he, he tells Penelope after this that he heard that Odysseus is on the verge of coming home. Right. So again, it's, it's almost like saying, yeah. Honey, it's me. Right. Yeah, you know, I'm right here, and it's about to go down. The irony is so rich, you could slice it with a knife. Yes. Right. <laughs> exactly. Odysseus right. tells Penelope. Odysseus told him that Odysseus is on the way home. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. I love all these these layers. And then we go on to the nurse. Yes. This this very famous, wonderful um, recognition scene. Take us through what happens here. Well, at this point, Penelope is going to offer proper zinnia to the stranger, and that means. You find out some things about him, but you offer him the comforts of home, yeah. right? A massage, the cleaning of your feet, right? The washing of people's feet, this maybe is a biblical illusion, is a special kindness in this kind of place where it's dusty and dirty. And, you know, they weren't walking around in, I don't know, whatever the equivalent of an expensive pair of boots is. Mm-hmm. They weren't walking around in those. No. No. Barefoot sandals most of the time, grimy, dirty, messy. So he's got to have his feet cleaned. Penelope then says, you're Clea. This old nurse washed the stranger's feet. Right. And um, can I read from, want me to read from Lombardo here? Yeah, I just wanted to mention first yeah. that Eurycleia's name, Eurycleia, means broad glory, yeah. wide ranging glory. An elevated name for someone of such a low station. Yes, yes, definitely. Maybe she has a backstory like Eumaeus, I don't know. Maybe she's from royalty too. Could be. Yep. So what does uh, Lombardo say about this episode? He says, and the old woman took the shining basin she used for washing feet poured cold water into it, then added the hot. Odysseus, waiting, suddenly sat down at the hearth and turned away toward the shadows. The scar. It flashed through his mind that his old nurse would notice the scar as soon as she touched him. Again, we're, we're getting a little bit of uh, interior insight. Yes, yeah? not, not everything revealed by dialogue, a little bit of uh, the inner monologue. Yeah, and then everything would be out in the open. And this is also a kind of Odysseus being kind of caught in a way that he usually isn't caught. He, he's, uh, you mean he didn't anticipate this in time? Right, right. And so now he's, now he's nervous. She drew near and started to wash her master. 
and knew at once the scar from the wound he had gotten long ago from a boar's white tusk when he had gone to Parnassus to visit Autolycus, his mother's father, who was the best man on earth at thieving and lying skills he had learned from Hermes. Mm. So his grandfather on his mother's side, this guy, he went to visit him on Mount Parnassus, right near Mm -hmm. Delphi. Right. And they engage in what do aristocrats of any age, what do they do? They hunt. They hunt, yeah. The young men go out. Odysseus was a young man. I think this was pre-Penelope. Yep. So he's maybe 16, 17, the text suggests. And in the course of this great hunt, uh, he snuck up on a boar who rushed from his den and put a big gash on the interior of his thigh. I don't think we're told which leg it is, and it probably doesn't matter, but this is one of those recognition tokens. Exactly right. And so Eurycleia, who would have been kind of his nanny Mm -hmm. at the time. Actually nursed him. Right. Oh, yeah. So, so nanny at the time, but nursed him as a wet nurse, as an infant. So that's right. Yeah. There's no, there's no closer intimacy or connection that he could have with someone than, than with this woman. So if anybody's going to know about the scar, it's going to be her. That's right. So she sees it and she shrieks. Mm. And how does Odysseus react? It's incredible. This is so interesting. He takes both hands and with one, he grabs her around the neck. So it's an impulsive, almost violent gesture. I mean, it is violent. Grabs her by the neck to stop her from speaking. With the other hand, he, he grabs her uh, behind the head or around the shoulders and pulls, him, uh, pulls her close to him and very, very quickly and basically says, you found out my secret, but if you say anything at all, I'll kill you. Yeah. It's, it reminds me of that scene with Circe as well, when Circe realizes that her charms won't work, her, you know, her pig charms won't work on Odysseus. He also grabs her and draws his sword and, and threatens mm. her with bodily harm. Did you say pig charms? Pig charms. <laughs> she was, that whole place was filled with pig charms. You don't remember this? Yeah, I don't know. I never put your, throw your charms before pigs. So, something like that. Okay. Yeah. I, this made me think of, there's been a number of, you know, television movie versions of the Odyssey. And they always have this scene. It's a famous scene. Do they get it right? Well, they don't follow Homer's script. <laughs> you mean to tell me Hollywood doesn't follow Homer? They don't. I'm it, shocked. In all the Hollywood versions, it's this tearful reunion between nurse, nursemaid, nanny, and, uh, and, and boy. Huh. And they fall into each other's arms, right? They take all the teeth out of it. They do. All, all of the interest. They do, exactly. But, um, and, and I think that's what makes, what, if you're used to that or if you're expecting that, what's what makes the scene so shocking. And so Odysseus... He basically says, you know, if you betray me, if I find out you haven't been loyal to me, if you don't help me, you're dead just like everybody else. Yeah. So Lombardo, uh, he says, if with heaven's help I subdue the suitors, I will not spare you, even if you are my nurse, when I kill the other women in the hall. Right. So And the other women. Right. So they're, they're targeted as well. It's not just the suitors. No, it struck me here that this is a measure of his devotion to his family. Hmm. There's nothing, he's not going to allow anything to come between himself and Penelope and Telemachus. Exactly right. So maybe that's putting a positive spin on what is, I don't know. I don't think it's really a murderous impulse, but he is very single-minded. Not even Eurycleia is going to get off. And she's hurt, obviously. Her feelings are deeply hurt at this outburst. Yeah. And she says, come on, you you can trust me. After all, I've known you since you were an infant. Yeah. And uh, so that, I think, is an, an argument in favor of the intensity of his emotion uh, rather than being a kind of murderous impulse. Right. And we quickly learn, if we haven't already, that Eurycleia is, she's devoted to the cause. Right. If no one delights more in the death of the suitors than she does. Absolutely. And she's pivotal to the action because as we just mentioned, Telemachus has instructed her, 
uh, surreptitiously, quietly remove all of the weapons from the hall, mm-hmm. and then the doors are going to be locked. Yeah. But what about the women who are going to be killed as well? What is what is Odysseus referencing? We've heard f- about uh, Melantho, who's the sister of Melanthius. Um, these these two horrible characters. Yep. Um, she's one of the the maids in the house who've been sleeping with the suitors. I think there are a dozen. A dozen. There yeah. are about a dozen maids, and this Melantho was raised by Penelope, like, yeah. like her own daughter. That's right. That's right. Have given every privilege, every kindness, and how have they repaid uh, the lord and lady of the house? Yeah, they spit in their face. Right, sleeping with the suitors. This is in book 19 as well, Mm -hmm. right? The dream of Penelope, just to segue into that. Yeah, I think this is so interesting. Again, um, it's Penelope sharing these fairly intimate details with this this stranger. This strange old man. This strange old man. She wants to know, hey, I have have this this dream, tell me what you think of it. <laughs> I talk about kind of a layered back and forth. I think this is so fascinating. She says to the beggar, but listen now to a dream I had and tell me what it means. In my dream, I have 20 geese at home. I love to watch them come out of the water and eat grains of wheat. But a huge eagle with a hooked beak comes down from the mountain and breaks their necks, killing them all. They lie strewn through the hall while he rides the wind up to the bright sky. I weep and wail still in my dream, and Achaean ladies gather around me as I grieve because the eagle killed my geese. Then the eagle comes back and perches upon a jutting roof beam and speaks to me in a human voice, telling me not to cry. Take heart, daughter of famed Icarius. This is no dream but a true vision that you can trust. The geese are the suitors, and I, who was once an eagle, am now your husband come back, and I will deal out doom, a grisly death for all the suitors. So he spoke, and I woke up refreshed. Looking around, I saw the geese in the house. Feeding on the wheat trough by the feeding on wheat by the trough as before. That is one elaborate and a very vivid dream, isn't it? Yeah, and it's it's got all these weird pushes pushes and, and pulls here. So the geese are the suitors, but then she wakes up and then there are actual geese. But um, is she telling the truth? Is she making up the dream just to draw out this beggar to prove he's Odysseus? Uh, with I think without a doubt, she is she is throwing something out there and says, "What are you going to do with this?" And then the beggar replies, well, duh, the dream interpreted itself. Your dream means that Odysseus is coming home, he's going to do what he said he's going to do. But of course, what he doesn't respond to is the fact is that if the geese are the suitors, why is Penelope weeping and wailing about them? Hmm. What, why would she be sad about the death of these geese if they're the suitors? She's, I think Penelope's saying, maybe she's even suggesting, look, you've got to make a move. But you know what? These guys falling all over me? And um, you know, worshiping me and my my beauty, there's part of me that kind of likes it. Hmm. Or maybe she's saying that if you don't move, listen, I could go that way. You could lose your chance. You could lose your chance. So you're complicating things once again. Yes. <laughs> but uh, I'm susceptible to the complication. You like it. Well, I think I'm being I'm being persuaded. Maybe this is what uh, Penelope's doing. Right. Right. And then it, it doesn't stop there. Then she says, "Well, okay." But let me tell you this, what else I know. She says that, and um, I can, who, who knows how Penelope knows this. She says, when dreams come from the underworld, they arrive at one of two gates. They pass through two gates. Gate, the gate of horn. And the gate of ivory. Yeah, I'm forgetting incredible. One, I'm forgetting, one is the gate of true dreams, and one is the gate of false dreams. Well, we better get it right, because we have a highly discriminating <laughs> audience. They're going to send us emails, nasty emails. If we get this wrong? If we get this wrong. All right. I believe it's the... Gate of Horn yes. is where the false dreams come. Right. And Penelope says, well, you know, I respect what you say, sir, but my dream came from the gate of false dreams. Mm. In that, again, she, I think I see Penelope saying, what are you going to do with that? Mm. And it's immediately after that that she proposes, 
the famous contest contest of the bow. Guess what? What? It's the horn of ivory. The horn of uh, the horn of ivory. Wait a minute. <laughs> Was it <laughs> the gate? Yes. Of ivory. Yes. The gate of ivory is the false one. Is the false one? Yeah. She she says that's where my dream came from. Now who knows how on earth she would know that? But she's saying, okay, you say my husband's coming home, but it's a false dream. Hmm. What are you going to do with that? And it's right after that. Then really out of nowhere, she proposes the contest of the bow and the axes. And I think that's really where Penelope says, we've got to get this done because she knows the outcome of that contest. We have to release other episodes. Is that basically what she's saying? Yes. The listeners, their patience is going to be strained if we, if we drag this out any further. I think so. Okay. Yes. So here comes the contest, the contest of bows. It's a shooting contest. Right. But dear listener, we have to wrap this up because in a classic bait and switch, not only did we last week forget to give you The Death of Argus, this week we promised you three books, didn't we? But we're only going to give you two. Yeah, we promised you 18, 19, 20. Guess what? You got to wait for 20. We'll, we'll get to it. We just, we ran out of time. There was it's, just, there's too much to talk about. It's so rich. It is. It's a giant amount of material here and we just can't, uh, you know, we just can't ignore it. All right, Jeff. Well, as we wrap up here, books 18 and 19, uh, we've seen some amazing things so far, haven't we? Yeah, in story? and it's just going to get better. Oh, yeah. Penelope kind of revealing that she knows who he is. Odysseus kind of revealing that he knows that she knows who he is. Right. And it's it's pushing towards the what you might say is the most important recognition scene. Finally, yes. when Odysseus and Penelope kind of acknowledge each other. Mm-hmm. To quote Steve Miller, we all face a scarlet conclusion, but we spend our time in a dream. Yes. <laughs> I think that's your third classic rock quote of this is episode. It? Yeah. Yeah. It's not bad. Uh, thanks. It's from Jungle Love. So <laughs> we want to say a hearty thank you to uh, Miss Mishka Fernando. As always. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Mishka, for all your wonderful work. We this love it. Sound engineer. Uh, she also puts together our Instagram feed yep. and our Facebook. Facebook thing. So if you're not following us on Instagram and Facebook, we'd like to know what's wrong with you. Exactly. Do it. Come on. What are you waiting for? We're giving away books on there and other kinds of things. We got to say thank you to our good friend, Mr. Ken Tamplin, who provides the bumper music for the ads and Mr. Scott Van Zen, who's playing that brilliant ripping guitar for the intro. Great stuff, guys. Much appreciated. Mm hmm. Um, and before we get out of here, uh, tell us a little bit about this thing called the Moss Method. Oh, I'd love to talk about the Moss Method. Okay. It will take you from neophyte to... Erudite. That's correct. It's a self-paced, accessible expert approach to the study of ancient Greek. So you too can learn how to read Plato, the New Testament. You can uh, learn to throw off some lines of Homer like uh, Dr. Winkle and I have been doing. What's um, what's on tap for next week, Jeff? Next week, we're, we're taking a break from our, our journey through the Odyssey. And we're going to um, have a conversation with Dr. Michael Fontaine from Cornell. Would you say a, a well-earned break? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So Mike Fontaine, Fontanus, a good friend of ours. What's he going to be talking about? He's going to talk about his new book, which is entitled How to Tell a Joke, An Ancient Guide to the Art of Humor. Ah, published by Princeton, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah. From the uh, Ancient Wisdom for Modern Readers. It's going to be, it's, it's going to be funny. I hope it's funny. It better be funny. He teaches over at Cornell Big Red, right? The Big Red. Is that, is that their, is that, is that their mascot? Yeah, somehow I the think. Big Red. I'm not really sure okay. where that is. But uh, listener, please subscribe, leave a review on your favorite podcast site. You can leave it at Apple, Spotify, something like that. Again, check out our social media. Send an email to jeff at adnauseum.com. Don't forget the V or Dave. We've been getting some great feedback. We might even feature you on the air if you contact us. And uh, Jeff, I think you have the gustatory parting shot this week, don't you? Yes, this comes from a gentleman by the name of John Gunther, who once said, all happiness depends 
on a leisurely breakfast. Thanks for listening. Thanks. 